morning, Desert Breeze. Psalm 95. Let us sing songs of praise. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who, are, who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Soul Keeping is our current teaching series. We've been looking at various uh, chapters in the book of Psalms. Whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that, as you have seen, as we've been working through Psalms this summer. And the title of this weekend's message is, You Were Made for This. You Were Made for This. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 95 and also grab your sermon notes out. Everyone is made to worship. Everyone on this planet is made to worship. It is what we do and who we are. We worship and we are all worshipers. The world is not divided into people who worship and people who don't worship. It is divided into people who worship created things and those who worship the creator. The next couple statements have been revolutionary for me when I discovered this a number of years ago. It's just, it's been life transforming. And you were created, I was created, you were created by God, for God, to give glory to God And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is what I discovered in in these statements is that my deepest satisfaction in God's glory are one and the same pursuit. That the more I live for his glory, make much of him, live with him at the center of my life, the more satisfaction I'm going to find in life. Because that's what I was created for. You were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. And and so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at uh, what does it mean to worship God, why should we worship God, and how can we grow in our worship of God. Let's take that first question. You'll see that on your notes. So what does it mean to to worship God? And uh, this is my probably my favorite definition of, of this. This is your first few fill-in-the-blanks. What does it mean to worship God? It is ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages 
and energizes our whole person, our mind, emotion, and will. So what does it mean to worship God? It it means to ascribe ultimate value. By the way, I already said it, we're all worshipers, so you're giving ultimate value to either the creator or created things. So we're talking about worshiping God here. So worshiping God is ascribing ultimate value and worth to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person, your mind, emotion, and will. Let's, let's take those three and, and work those out. So first of all, it involves focusing my attention on God. That's your next fill in the blank. So we're talking about our mind here. So let's go back to the text and see if we uh, can see the psalmist doing that. Is he engaging his mind? Is he focusing his attention on God? Yes, look at verses 1, 3, and 6. Keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring back to the text. Uh, Three times he uses the word Lord. That's the personal name for God. All capital letters. Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, it's God's personal name. It's his covenant name, Yahweh. Intimacy with God. So he's talking about this intimate God who has made himself known to us. And then you see in verse 1, the rock of our salvation. So he's using this imagery, these ideas of God. And then verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Verse 4, in his hand. Now he goes from God now to creation. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. Verse five, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. Now, why do mountains and oceans move us so deeply? Why do we like beautiful landscapes? It's because they are a great work of art. Psalm 19 says that creation reveals the glory of God. And day after day, they pour forth speech. So when you look at creation, it should draw your heart to God. If that looks glorious, how much more glorious is our creator? If that is appealing to you and it's beautiful to you, it's just saying, even more so is our creator beautiful. And and so that's that's what he's saying here. So he goes from uh, specific images about God, and then he talks about about creation. And creation is nonverbal communication, that this world is not an accident, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands. And then he goes from creation now, and he says, not only did he create everything, but he's our maker. He made us. Tells us in Psalm uh, 139, that he knit us together in our mother's womb. He was involved in that whole process, putting us together. Verse seven, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So, so what, is he, what is the psalmist doing? He's taking inventory, he's enumerating, he's reflecting upon the excellencies of God until there's this explosion in his heart. So worship begins in the mind as you reflect deeply about who God is and what he's done. Now, With your mind, you can grasp the attributes of God, but it's altogether another thing when the attributes of God get a grasp on you emotionally, and they stir you, and they move you, and they energize you. And that takes us to the next, expressing my affection to God, our emotions. Do we see the psalmist doing that in this text? Absolutely. Look at verse 1. Let us make a joyful 
That's an expression of joy to God, a joyful noise. Verse 2, come into his presence with what? Thanksgiving. So you see his emotions are stirred because of who this God is. Verse 8, there's a warning here. Do not harden your heart. They are a people who go astray in their heart. So what is, what is he talking about? Why does it shift from this a praise to God and then all of a sudden there's this warning, the last half of the, of the psalm? Why the warning? What is a hard heart? A hard heart is a heart that is like stone. It's cold, insensitive, unfeeling towards God. So this is a terrifying condition to be in, to find yourself no longer interested in Christ, his word, prayer, worship, missions, or living for his glory, and to find all the fleeting pleasures of this world more attractive than God. That's a hard heart. That you would think that somehow in created things you could find more satisfaction than what you could find in the creator. That's a hard heart. That's where the nation of Israel, that's where they were. As they were wandering through the wilderness, that's what he's talking about. They wandered around in the wilderness, never made it into the promised land because of their hard heart, because of their unbelief. Romans 3.23, how many are familiar with that verse? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? We fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see, listen to me, we fail to see how desirable and satisfying God is. That's how we fall short. We live for the, the glory of ourselves, the glory of a created thing, as opposed to the glory of God. Sin is a failure to see that God is more desirable and satisfying than anything in this world. Now let's talk about emotions here a little bit, how God has wired us up. What, what, what's true about emotions? You've heard me talk about this many times before. Emotions reveal our values. So if I, if I hung out with you, I could find out just what's really important to you by your emotional response to certain things in life. So it reveals your values, it reveals your evaluations of life, your response to the, to the difficult circumstances, whether or not you believe that God is with you or not, based on how you respond and how you evaluate, uh, how you evaluate the circumstances of life and your emotional response to that is gonna really reveal whether or not you believe that God is for you or not or against you. And so emotions reveal your values, your evaluations, and influence motives and conduct. Now, from Bob Coughlin's book, Worship Matters, listen to what he says. We want to avoid emotionalism, but not emotions. Emotionalism pursues feelings as an end in themselves. It's wanting to feel something with no regard to how the feeling is produced or its ultimate purpose. Emotionalism can also be viewed, uh, emotionalism can also view heightened emotions as the infallible sign that God is present. So we can put too much emphasis on that and, and, and we're not a, we're not a kind of church that hypes people up. We don't want emotionalism. We want you to be emotional in your response to God, certainly. But we want it to be done as a result of you thinking deeply about who God is in response to who God is and what he's done for you. Not just be hyped up and stirred up. And I know that I've been in those environments before where it was more emotionalism. And, um, and in fact, listen to what Jonathan Edwards 
actually says about our emotions. He says, no spiritual truth ever changed a person's attitude or conduct unless it aroused his emotions. No sinner ever hungered for salvation. No Christian ever awoke from spiritual coldness unless the truth, notice this, the truth affected his heart. The emotions are as important as that. So so focusing your attention on God should stir up deep affection for God, verses one and two, joy and thanksgiving. As you were thinking about these songs we were singing, that's why we're very careful about the songs that we sing, that they're very biblically accurate. And And then as it stirs up our hearts, you know, those truths should stir up your hearts if you're thinking deeply about these songs. You're singing these songs to God. And as we study God's word, it should stir something up within you. It should get a hold of you emotionally. That's important. And so, and, and what will happen is that will lead to living my actions for God. That's the next fill in the blank. So living my actions, my life for God, that's our will. So you got our mind, emotion, and now our will. It's gonna change how you live out, how you live out your life. Is that true? So we gotta go back to the Bible. Bible's our, our, our standard for faith and practice. So you always go back to the scripture. Is that what he's doing here? Is that what you see? Yeah, absolutely. Let us sing. Those are his actions. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. <laughs> I love that because he makes a distinction between singing and making a joyful noise. Some of us sing and some of us make a joyful noise. But he's, he's celebrating that. He said, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can't sing, make a joyful noise. And, uh, and so that's part of that. Verse six, let us bow down. I wish we had more room to bow down in here. That's really an important expression. So you can at least, if you can't do it here, you can bow down at home, beside your bed. Bow down, honor God, worship God. He's saying that, he's expressing with his actions Kneel before the Lord. Let me give you some more verses here that talk about our, our behavior, our actions in response to God. Uh, Psalm 3.3 says, lifting up our head. There are times that in worship, I've watched over the audience, people are lifting up their head. They're going, yes, God, yes. And then uh, Psalm 28.2, lifting up our hands. It's appropriate to do that. Psalm 30.11, dancing. Psalm 96.8, offering. Psalm 47.1, clapping. Psalm 110.2, serving the Lord with gladness. There are many people right now in, with our children in our classes uh, that are serving the Lord with gladness, con- contributing, being involved in, in the local church. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you go to your favorite lunch place, maybe after this is over, or maybe you're gonna go have brunch or whatever, enjoy your brunch to the glory of God. You can, you can whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's, here's the idea of this, and that is as, as Christians, God should so dominate our thoughts stir our deepest emotions and move us to action in such a way that people would infer from our lives that Christ is more desirable and more satisfying than anything on this planet. That's how we should live our lives. And that would be contagious to others. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's finding our deepest satisfaction in him. And the way we do that 
It's through worship, ascribing ultimate worth and value to him in such a way that it engages and energizes our whole being. Now, Jesus made a, a big deal about this mind, emotion, and will all woven together in worship. Remember what he said in Matthew 15, 8 through 9. He said, he's talking about the Pharisees, these people worship me with their, with their lips or their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. They're just going through the motions. They just showed up to church. They checked the box. They came to be entertained. There's, there's not a connection with me and them. They're not expressing their heart. They're not thinking deeply about me, and therefore their hearts and their, their emotions are not stirred, and it's not going to change them in any way. See, if you f- affirm the biblical doctrines of God mentally without ever experiencing in your inner being emotionally a ravishing sense of the beauty and the glory of God, it's not worship. There should be moments in your personal devotions as you're studying scriptures that they come after you and you go, oh, oh my goodness, that is amazing. God, that's what you think of me? You love me that much? Oh my goodness, that's overwhelming. There should be those moments in your life. That's, that's who I am? That's, that's how you see me? That's who you are, God? Oh my goodness, you're bigger than any problem I've ever faced. God, you care about me? So there should be something that begins to take place in your heart. On the other hand, if you go to a a service and have an emotional experience, but it doesn't change you fundamentally in how you live your life, your character over time, it's not worship. It should transform your life. Now, let me give you an illustration here. Imagine you inherited a piece of jewelry passed on to you from your great, 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 great grandmother, and you kind of, you put it in, you know, in the jewelry box at home, you kind of lose track of it, you don't think much of it, and uh, you lose your job, you drain your bank account, you become financially desperate, and so you begin to look, search through your stuff to see, I need to start selling some stuff just to make ends meet. So you take this old piece of jewelry to, to a jeweler where, as he's looking at it with his little eyepiece, you know how jewelers will take a look at that, that eyepiece just pops out of his eye and goes, oh my goodness. And, and you discover It's worth tens of millions of dollars. It's a very rare ancient piece of jewelry. Now now think about this. Suddenly, suddenly your mind, emotion, and will are all engaged because you realize what you have is unbelievably valuable. Because you didn't understand the true wealth of it, you were not living in a manner that was consistent with its worth. You just threw it in a jewelry box somewhere and just ignored it forgot about it. Most people believe in God. If you do a survey, most people in America would say, oh, yeah, 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 I believe in God in in kind of a general way. Most people believe in God but are like you were before you realized the value of that rare ancient piece of jewelry you possessed, totally unaffected, completely unaware of its value. See, worship is to see what God is worth with our attention our mind, and to give to God what he is worth with our affection and actions. So worship is not something that can be coerced or forced or manipulated. Like I said, we don't do that. We're not going to get you all hyped up and, come on, you can worship more than that and you can, you can sing louder than that or, or, or whatever. We just don't do that. 
and I don't, I'm not asking for, you know, amen or praise God or whatever. I want you to really understand if you naturally do that, that's, that's fantastic. Some of you do. I, I think that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I want you to be responding to who God is and what he's doing in your life, not just as a big hyped up service. Because that's, the Lord said that that's actually really meaningless if it's not, if it's baseless, if it's not based on who he is and what he's done in our life. And so worship is, is not something that can be coerced or forced or manipulated. It is the natural response of seeing God's worth and giving to God what he is worth. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. So I can tell, you know, by your worship during our song and even how attentive you are here, it's gonna, your worship is going to rise because this is, a wor- this is worship as we study the Scripture just as much as singing songs to God. And I can tell whether you have a high or low idea of God based on on your response, even now. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. Lostness or, or a hard heart is blindness to the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us. I mean, I know that you've talked with your friends about the beauty and the glory of Christ and all that he's done for you, and sometimes they just kind of look at you with this blank stare on their face and kind of very indifferent about what you're saying, and it's because they're blind, and maybe they're even, they even might have a hard heart. Even I've, I've done that with other Christians, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that stuff before. And it's like, no, 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 I don't think you really have <laughs> because you wouldn't be responding like that. You're just kind of like, you're indifferent? How could you be indifferent towards Jesus? Oh, my goodness. Do you understand what he's done for you? What's going on? Your heart is hard. You should be excited about the fact that we're talking about Jesus here. That should be, he should be your favorite subject. I mean, to talk about him, to reflect on him deeply, to think about him, to praise him. In fact, the more you grow in ascribing ultimate worth to God, this is how it changes our lives, the more you will grow in fervent love for him. It will light your heart on fire for him. You'll grow in hatred towards sin, fear of displeasing him, deep gratitude for his goodness, joy for his presence. I love his presence. That's, that's my favorite, okay? I love intimacy with God. I love the fact that he is with me. I have his presence. You have his presence if you're a believer in Christ Jesus. Joy of his presence, zeal for his glory, love for your fellow man. There will be a love in you for others like nothing ever because of his love for you. As you experience more of his love, you actually, you actually will love your enemies because of his love growing in you. I mean, that sounds crazy, but it's, it's not if you really know his love. If you're experiencing him, if you're ascribing ultimate worth and value to him. So worship is ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person your mind, emotions, and will. Okay, got that. We could end the service right there. That would be enough for us to work on the rest of the week. But you know me. I pack it full. We still got some work to do. Because I don't think some of you are convinced yet that, that how important that is. So, so let's answer the next question. Why should we worship? Why should we worship? Because if I don't worship the true and living God, I will worship a counterfeit God. Okay, where is that found in the text? Well, it's it's a bit subtle in the text. Got your Bibles there. Look at verse 3. For the Lord 
Yahweh is a great God and a great king. Notice what he says, above all gods. Above all gods. So there's the true and living God, and there's a whole lot of other gods. Okay, they're, they're false gods, they're counterfeit gods. And so, is that true? What does the Bible say? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know uh, when you go to Exodus chapter 20, it gives us the top 10 list, that is God's top 10, uh, the 10 commandments, okay? And so, uh, what's the number one on that list? What's the top of that list? Real quick, discuss it with the person next to you, see if they know. Okay, so how many, have, how many said, uh, you shall have no other gods before me? Okay, that's it. Okay, so, so did you notice in that first commandment, there's not a, like a third option? <laughs> did you guys see that? You guys see there's no third option? There's not like there are two options. You either serve the true and living God or you'll, you'll serve a counterfeit God. Why, why would he not give us a third option? Because there are people who say, oh, I don't serve any God. No, 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 you serve God. You don't serve the true and living God, it's obvious, but you serve a God, you have a God. There's something or someone that you serve. And so that's why he doesn't, there, there is no third option because we were created to worship. You were created to worship. And, and if God is not at the center of your life, then something else is. Everybody lives for something, and whatever that something is becomes the Lord of your life. You might not like to consider it, you know, like that, or look at it quite like that, but it is. Listen to what uh, Rebecca Pippert says. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. One thing is certain, we do not control ourselves, we're controlled by the Lord of our lives. Now, everybody has a Lord, everyone. And if you don't worship the true and living God, you will worship a counterfeit God. Here's the next, next point on your notes. Only the true and living God can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. So, so here's my question for you. How do you know that you've got a counterfeit God? How do you know that you've got an idol, that you actually have demoted God and you've got something else at the center of your life? How would you be able to tell that? That's, that's, a, that's a good question for us to look at because you actually need to know what is it that's in your heart that competes for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from the true and living God because we all have that in our lives. What are those things that are competing in your heart because that's where the war is going on. That's the true spiritual warfare. Here's how I know in, in my, my own life is I have to look at what dominates my thoughts, what stirs my deepest emotions, that's right, and what motivates my actions. What gets me out of bed in the morning besides needing to go to the bathroom? Okay, and that usually happens about one or two o'clock at night, okay? I'm getting old, okay? I'm not proud of it. But uh, 
So, what, so you look at that. Here's another way of looking at it is that uh, you look at your emotional response to certain things in your life and you can identify how important those things are. Remember we said that emotions reveal values and evaluations? And so you look at your emotional response. So if you have a counterfeit God, if that counterfeit God is being threatened, you're not just gonna be anxious, you're gonna be inordinately anxious. If that counterfeit God is, is uh, being blocked, maybe it was that raise that you thought you deserved but you didn't get it, and it's a counterfeit God, you're not just gonna be angry, you'll be bitter and you won't be able to get over it. If that counterfeit God is lost, completely lost, never to be retrieved again, you're not just gonna be sad, you, you will probably be depressed and maybe even suicidal. So you take a look at your heart. That's how God's wired up our heart. It reveals so much to us about our counterfeit gods, the things that we're serving more than the true and living God. Why does person A overreact to love loss and person B doesn't overreact to love loss, they could take it or leave it, but they overreact to politics. You start talking politics, they get all fired up and they're angry. And then you got person C, doesn't overreact to love loss or politics, but to stock market highs and lows. So, so you, let's say that person A, B, and C are your friends. So how would you help them? How would you help them to, to work through uh, this overreacting this inordinate uh, anxiety, anger, and depression as it relates to these counterfeit gods in their lives. How would you help them to work through that? What would you do? See, our ultimate problem is always what we worship. It's a worship problem. The solution is not self-help or behavioral modification or another list of how-tos. It's not. It's only when you see God's love, security, significance that we have in him is more beautiful, more desirable, more satisfying than the love of romance or the security of politics and government or the significance of all the money in the world. Will you be healed when you begin to see that he's more desirable, he's more satisfying? than anything else, it begins healing in your life. Nothing less than transferring of our ultimate worth and value from where it is to the true and living God will heal you and give your life an unshakable meaning, hope, and happiness that can face anything. Whether the politics are high and low, whether you have love loss or love gain, whether the stock market goes high or low, it doesn't matter, it's inconsequential because you have Christ and you worship him and you know that you trust his loving, wise control of your life in all the circumstances. And so you worship him. You, get, you gotta pull your heart off of those things and put your heart on him. Remember, worship is the ultimate it's ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person. And there's nothing like it.
There's nothing like worshiping God, enjoying the glory of God, experiencing Him. Now, we've got to go back to the text. Is that true? Is this what the, what the text is telling us? Yeah, look at what he says in verse 6. Let us, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He's our Maker. And then verse 7, for He is our God. He's my God. Covenant language. He's my God. He's got all, everything covered. I don't care what the economy does. I don't care what the stock market does. He's in control. He's my God. He's watching over me. He loves me. In fact, he even gives these tender words in verse 7. Uh, he says that we are his people his, of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Immediately, I went to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, lack nothing, contentment. I'm content in him. I have everything I need in him. That's what he's talking about here. Now, Another quick cross-reference here, illustration, is in John chapter 4. How many are familiar with the story of the woman at the well? You guys familiar with that story? Okay. And Jesus shows up. Disciples go into town for lunch to bring it back to Jesus. So Jesus has this interaction with this guy. I'm not going to get into it. You'll have to read it on your own. It's really a great story. But, but how many times had this woman been married? Five, Five times. I would say that's a lot of times. And... Uh, and, then, and she was living with the guy. She was currently with the guy that she wasn't married to. She probably gave up on the whole marriage thing, okay? She's just, but but what, what was her idol? What was her counterfeit God? What would you say just from looking at her life? Jesus knew this. It would be the attention and affection of men. And, and she went from one man to another man to another man to another one. We hit the fifth one, and then the sixth one. She said, ah, forget the marriage, but I still need a man. So she's living with this guy. And so Jesus says some pretty profound things, but here's a couple things that he says. He says, and they're talking about the well, and he's using this as an analogy of, of the emptiness on, inside of her. And he says, if you drink of this water, you will be thirsty again. In other words, he was trying to let her know that you can, you can go to one, you can go to a hundred men and they'll never satisfy you like the water that I will give you. And that's what he says to her. It's, it's really quite profound. Drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. Drink of the water that I give you. Oh my goodness, you'll never be thirsty again. She goes, oh, please give me that water. This is what she wanted. She wants that water and her life was transformed. From that moment on, she went back to town. She told everybody about Jesus and that, there was a revival that hit that little town because of her testimony because they looked at her and they go, what? What has happened to you? She was transformed because she found this unbelievable satisfaction in, in the Savior. And she was contagious with it, and they wanted to have what she had. Quite amazing. Really amazing. Here's the next thing on your notes. It will protect my heart from being hijacked from lesser loves. So that's why he says, verse 7, today if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your heart. Verse 10, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. They they're not gonna find their satisfaction that only can be found in me. He's talking about the nation of Israel wandering around in the wilderness, and so it also applies, applies to us. And so Romans 125 really tells us fundamentally what's wrong with us and the battle that goes on in our heart. And what we typically do is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. And the only way that we can pull our hearts off of created things is to fall in love with the creator. 
to realize what he has for us. When you look at Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and what the, kind of the process that they went through is it started with unbelief. They began to doubt God's character. They felt that God was holding out on them in some way. They doubted his goodness, and that unbelief went to pride. I think I'm smarter than God. I can find happiness on my own, and then it moved right into idolatry. They began to look for a substitute for God. That's the same process we all go through. Now, when you look through... Uh, the Old Testament, who is known as the man after God's own heart? Anybody? Yeah, David. And certainly was, and yet he did some really bad things, like adultery and murder and betrayal of his whole nation. And, and, and so the prophet Nathan comes to him and preaches to him, and he repents. And in Psalm 51, you have his repentance psalm. And it's quite a profound psalm of repentance. You learn a lot about repentance in Psalm 51. But in there, he says something that's quite interesting. He says, he says in there in Psalm 51, 12, uh, as it relates to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now, there's something that happened in David and it wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. The only reason why we sin is because we're not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. We, we in unbelief, think he's holding out on us. He doesn't have our best interest at heart. In pride, we think we're smarter than him. And in idolatry, we begin to look for something that will replace God where we'll find our satisfaction. That's fundamentally how the war goes on in our heart. And so he was saying, restore to me the joy of my salvation. What an idiot I am. Why would I pursue all of this when I had you? Jeremiah 2.13, let me paraphrase that. This is, it gives us another kind of an analogy of, of this idea of sin that, that battles in our heart. Jeremiah the prophet uh, says basically that sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns that might have water for a season, but then they run out. They're broken because they leak, and that's what we do. We fail to see how desirable and satisfying he is. Let me give you a couple illustrations here before we move on to the end of the message. Uh, these are illustrations that I use in uh, our Game of Life. I used to use them years ago, and I've, I, I use them for Game of Life. If you've never gone through Game of Life, how many have gone through Game of Life? Show of hands. Okay, a lot of you. This is a class everybody needs to take here. We take about 50 to 100 people through this class every year. I have the privilege of teaching this class, and what we try to do in this class is to help to build a solid foundation of, of turning you into a Christian hedonist, Okay. And that might, sound, that might sound weird. Some of you just woke up right then and go, hedonist? No, Christian hedonist, okay? Hedonist is pleasure is your God. Christian hedonist is God is your pleasure. We want you to learn what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ uh, through our 5G process of, of how, how to worship God and engage our mind, emotion, and will. And really, we help you to do that. So make sure you sign up for that. It's starting in, in, in uh, September. Shameless plug there. Uh, for that, but a couple of the illustrations that I use here is uh, one is Rocky One. How many have ever seen Rocky One? Rocky One, Rocky. Okay. How many have never seen Rocky One? Never. Okay. Okay. What is wrong with you people? 
I'm kidding. It's not worth watching. But, uh, <laughs> but in Rocky One, who's his girlfriend? Okay. Adrian. And uh, his girlfriend wanted to know why he wanted to go the distance in the boxing match. Remember that? Why are you so driven? And, and do you remember his response? Here's his response. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. So Rocky was working for his identity, not from his identity. Oh, no, I'm not a bum. So what does he do? Does he, does he win the match? No. Does he, do, does he go the distance? Okay, so he goes the distance, but it wasn't enough because then you have Rocky two, three, four, five, <laughs> six. I don't know how many Rockies there are, but way too many, okay? Because guess what? When you are working for your identity from a created thing, it will never satisfy you. It will never satisfy you. And then the other movie, it's, it's, it would fit into my top 10 list. It's Chariots of Fire. One best picture in 1981. It's about the 1924 Great Britain Olympic team. And, and what it does is it contrasts these two guys, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. Harold Abrahams is a Jewish Englishman, and what you see in the movie is that he runs for his glory. In fact, while he's getting ready for the... Uh, 10-yard dash, 10-yard, 100-yard dash. <laughs> I want to run the 10-yard dash. <laughs> That's to the bathroom at night, 10-yard dash. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you're old like me, you know it. You know that. <laughs> I just blew my illustration. So, so a hundred yard dash. And so before he runs a hundred yard dash, and this is what he says in the movie, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. No, your existence is already justified through Christ Jesus, but he didn't know that, neither did Rocky. And what's interesting about this in this movie is that even his success in running is more important to, to his girlfriend. His girlfriend has to kind of take a you know, be in the background a bit. And she's a little upset. And, and you can see his emotional response when he loses races. I mean, he is angry. He's upset. He's anxious. He's over the top, overreaction. And there's a scene in there where she comes to him and says, dude, why don't you grow up? It's just a race. She really tries to talk some sense into him, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. And, uh, and both of these men, Rocky and uh, Harold Abrahams, are looking to athletic achievement to justify their existence and to give their life meaning, hope, and happiness. And this is to be contrasted with Eric Little. This is a true story, by the way. Eric Little was a Christian. He was from Scotland. And you see in the movie, he runs for God's glory. In fact, he was a missionary to China. And his his, his his sister keeps trying to talk to him, hey, forget the running thing. We need to go back to China as missionaries. And, uh, and he eventually does after he runs, and he goes back to China, and he dies in a prison camp there in China. But here's a, there's an interesting scene in the movie and, um, where he tells his sister, he says to her, God made me fast, and he was fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he was just saying, I do this for the glory of God. This is another platform so that I can tell people about Jesus. Well, what happens in the Olympics is that he's going to run on Sunday, and he refuses to run on Sunday. And it shows uh, that God was more important. And in fact, uh, 
What was interesting about this movie is that he refused to run on Sunday because it was the Lord's day. He held that very dearly. And Eric Little knew that there is no greater fortune than knowing God and no greater fame than being known by God. And he was willing to give up the gold. He, was the, he would have won the gold for the 100-yard dash, but he refused that. And so they put him in another race that landed later on in the week, and it was the, I think it was the 400-meter, and he won a gold in that. And so it was, it was quite amazing to look at the contrast here between their lives. He lived for God's glory. That's how God wants us to live. And when you, when you watch the movie, when you look at his life, you want to know the God that he knows. He might be fast, he might be very athletic, but he realizes that was all given to him by God to be a, a platform so that he could point, point to God. And so, so the question here that we just answered is why, why should we worship God? Because if I don't worship the true and living God, I will worship a counterfeit God. Only the true and living God can satisfy the deepest longing of my soul and it will protect my heart from being hijacked by lesser loves. So how can we get really good at worshiping God? That's the next question. How can we grow in our worship of God? Four indispensable habits of our heart. And here's the first one, get plugged into a healthy church. Now, is that part of the text? Is that, can we see that in the text? Absolutely, we can see it throughout the scripture. So we, you need community. Notice what he says in verses one, two, and six. So. So six times in three verses, did you notice how he says this? It's plural. He says, let us, let us, let us, let us, let us, let us. Six times. He's talking community here. You can't do it alone. He also says in verse 7, for he is our God, plural, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. A sheep without a flock is a lost sheep. You need to be plugged into a local church family. The Bible is very clear about that. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day coming near or drawing near. And I know this goes against our culture of anonymity and rugged individualism, but it's biblical. Because most people want to just show up on a weekend service, check the box, come late, leave early, and not interact with people. But if you're not interacting with people more than what you're interacting with people on a weekend service, that's not healthy. You need community. You need people in your corner cheering you on, and you need to cheer them on. And uh, we, we do small groups here at Desert Breeze. That's part of our church. And your Christian friends, those that you're closest to, will, will see aspects of the good shepherd that you will never know and love unless you know and love them. So another shameless plug here, okay? Connection party. It's one of the ways you can get connected here. We've got a lot of small groups, so connection parties come up. Sign up for that. Sign up for Game Alive. Sign up for connection party. Okay? And, or don't come back next week. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you can keep hanging out with us. That's, that's okay. And I'm going to keep working you, okay? Try to see, let you see how important this is. DB is a place where strangers become friends and friends be, become family. Yeah. Life change happens best in small groups. This is the catalyst for life change. 
But life change happens best in small groups. When you interact with other Christians, that's where the change begins to take place. You begin to work through the issues of your life. You begin to share your heart with them. They share their heart with you. You need that. Here's the next thing. Get to know God through his word, truth. So you've got community, you've got truth. How does the psalmist know what kind of God he is? Because he's quoting scripture. He knows the scriptures before he writes this. Verses 6 through 11, he's quoting Numbers 14, chapter 14, verses 1 through 44. John 4, 23 and 24 says, The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in what? In truth. In truth. Oftentimes I'll hear people uh, say, um, I like to think of God like this. Well, then let me just say that your God is a figment of your imagination. Because you need to think of God like he has revealed himself to us through his word. You need to always go back to his word. So I like God, I kind of think God does this and does that. Where is that in the Bible? Go back to the scripture. Can you base that on scripture? Because he has revealed himself to us through scripture. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's, he's quoting scripture. He's, he's referring to the, the God who has revealed himself to us. Only if your God can argue with you and make you struggle will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. The true and living God's gonna convict you. He'll come after you. And his conviction is not to shame you, but to woo you closer to him, to draw you closer in. But it creates a little turmoil in your life as he confronts some of the crazy ideas that you have in your head about him and about how to live your life. But he loves you. Here's the next one. Don't just expect God's presence, but seek his presence. This is the Holy Spirit. Verse two, let us come into his presence. What is he talking about there? That's the Holy Spirit. Let us come into the presence of God with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The purpose of worship is to come into God's presence. I love God's presence. I love intimacy with God. This is why we worship. You wanna interact with the true and living God. We have access into the throne room of God as believers in Christ. John 4, 23 and 24, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. This is not the omnipresence of God that he's talking about here. We know that God is everywhere present, but this is the manifested presence of God. In spite of the fact that God is everywhere, the spirit of God working through the word of God and the people of God will make his presence become real to your heart. This is God's presence moving from a concept in your head to a reality in your heart when you know you're interacting with the true and living God. Psalm 105.4 says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Here's the last one. Get good at transferring your ultimate worship from created things to the creator. And now he talks about this gospel rest. You're gonna find rest, gospel rest. Gospel rest is basically this. The work is finished on the cross. You have access into the throne room of God. You have everything you need through Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is, that, uh, is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life, eternal life. And that comes with loads and loads and loads of benefits that are out of this world. And so that's what he's talking about here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the wilderness through their unbelief after seeing God's work. Verse 10, 
They are a people who go astray in their heart. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. Hebrews 3 and 4 basically is saying these verses apply to salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Stop looking to created things to give you what only the creator can give you. If you're living for your career, you will never be completely fulfilled. And, and, and if you fail that God, it'll be terribly unforgiving. That God will never forgive you, you'll hate yourself forever. If you're living for love, romance, or family, he will never completely fulfill you. And if you fail that God, it will never forgive you. You'll be tormented forever. But listen to me. If you give your ultimate worship to Christ, he is the only Lord. When you get him, completely fulfills you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you forever. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So Father God, we were created by you, for you, to give glory to you. We confess and repent of our sinful tendency to exchange the truth of you for a lie and worship and serve created things more than you, our creator. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us and reconcile us to you. Teach us how to be more skillful at ascribing ultimate worth to you in such a way that it engages and energizes our whole person. May our hearts be more and more ravished by your love and security and significance so that we are less and less held hostage to the lesser things of this world. For your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, so gospel rest, gospel rest, what is gospel rest? Here's what gospel rest is, it's the, the verdict comes before the performance. What is that? Well, religion says, no, the performance comes before the verdict. It says you better get your act together. And if you do, start obeying God, live right, then God will accept you. And actually, that's not the gospel. The gospel says, no, no, God accepts us. He loves us. He adores us in Christ. Therefore, the performance comes as a response to that. So the verdict comes before the performance. When the woman at the well... What was that? There's water that you're longing for. Let me give you that water, and it will change your life forever. That's the, that's the verdict. The verdict is, hey, yeah, you're chasing after all these guys, but I have water for you, and if you'll come and drink of that water, you'll be satisfied. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? He is without sin. Throw the first stone, Jesus said. They all walked out. Jesus faced her and said, where are your accusers? She says, I have none. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. There's the verdict. Now the performance, go and sin no more. There's certain cards that I carry around with me just to remind me of this. Here's one of those. Uh, that in Christ I have been forgiven, adopted into his family, made righteous in his sight, given the gift of his Holy Spirit, assured of my resurrection into glory unimaginable. If he never did another thing for me, I should praise and serve him with my whole being for the rest of my life, just for what I have in him. 
So as we take communion here, that's what we're celebrating, all that we have through Jesus Christ. He's the one that satisfies the deepest longing of our soul. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant, what does that mean? Well, the new covenant, the old covenant was a sacrificial system. It was temporary, but it all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. It's been done. It is finished. All the work has been done for us. That's the new covenant. And you can enter into it by grace through faith in Christ. All the blessings of heaven are ours. It says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. If you're new here, I would love the opportunity to meet you. I'll be up here at the end of the service. And also, if you need prayer for any reason whatsoever, I'll be up here at the end of the service. I'd love to pray with you. And so here's my blessing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In our Savior's beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.